Hi and welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. My name is Kelly J. This episode I talked to Dr. James Lindsay. Uh, you probably know him uh, to have written many books on the subjects like religion, the philosophy of science and, and postmodern theory. He's a co-founder of New Discourses. Um, you would have imagined that I would have been talking a lot about his latest book that he co-authors with Helen Pluckrose about cynical theories how an activist scholarship made everything about race, gender and identity and why this harms everybody. But I was so intrigued by the man himself, not just his work, but but just just by him, that we we talked a lot and shared ideas and it was a really nice conversation. I have to say I found him really warm and caring and uh, I do hope he doesn't give up his current pursuits to keep engaging with the world and telling the truth. As always, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And if you fancy it, give me a review. You can support me in the various ways in the description. But enjoy. This is a, this is a good chat. Welcome uh, to the Woman by Definition podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, it's a, it was a bit of a surprise, I think, to, to be invited to be on the, the Woman by Definition podcast. But <laughs> I don't meet the definition, it turns out. <laughs> well... I do. Uh, apparently, uh, they're going to try and stretch it in the UK and in a variety of dictionaries, but um, it's just because I did that billboard, so I'm kind of stuck with it. Um, then it was removed for hate speech. I don't know if you know anything about what I do. Uh, just a little. I did know about that, yes. Uh, I don't know much beyond that, to be honest. But Well, that's pretty um, much it. That's the highlight of my activism. <laughs> so no, we'll it's, see. it's important activism in the in this day and age mm. actually so it's good that, that you're doing it yeah well i've been interviewed under caution twice by the british police and uh so all the things that you talk about i i pretty much have been uh right on the precipice of all of that crap um so with uh, uh, what's going on in america at the moment um is it lost is it retrievable? Oh, you, you know, if you would have asked me this yesterday, I would have been in a much better mood. <laughs> and I think <laughs> if you ask me this on the day after tomorrow or tomorrow even, I'll probably be in a much better mood. And today I'm a bit, I'm not normally pessimistic. I'm a little bit pessimistic. Um, so a pattern that happens is that I see things either that are happening in the world or that I've come across. It doesn't really happen with the scholarship anymore, but it used to be that I'd come across something in the scholarship and it would just like knock me right off kilter. Like, how can this exist? This, how can this be? And it would really upset me and kind of, you know, give me this woe, despair, you know, very negative, pessimistic perception. And so yesterday I ran into a bunch of stuff about it being in our federal government, even with Trump as our president, it's in our federal government. It's like, that's his government. It's like, whoa, if it's in that, it's like, what is it not in? And so I don't know. I, I am inclined to be generally optimistic um, <clears throat> as reality does bat last. It will eventually bat last. And you know, you can't deny reality forever. The problem is, is you can destroy an awful lot along the way. What I'm seeing simultaneously are massive, massively encouraging signs and massively discouraging signs at the same time. So I don't know how to read uh, which ones are more, more trustworthy. I see people waking up and wanting to push back. I see people publishing criticism where 
even two months ago, they wouldn't have dared. And so I don't know if all is lost. I have very little hope for our university system in the United States, mm. very little. Uh, I see a path that could save it, but given it's, you know, other massive constraints with the budget issues and everything else, I just don't know how they dig themselves out of the hole that they've created. Now is not the time, you know, with the, it already being a budget pressure problem as it was, and then you add in the, the coronavirus restriction mm. and people wanting to defer away from college, so not pay full tuition or not pay tuition at all to do distance learning, cutting into their budgets, massive budget shortfalls as a result, massive expensive programs having to be come up with to get around coronavirus issues. And then all of a sudden you decide you're just gonna, you know, start putting in these policies and principles at the core of the university project that make maybe as much as a third of your student body unwilling to come back. It's just a, it's a horrendous strategy. So I, I now, I was cautiously optimistic when Jordan Peterson said a few years ago that um, he foresaw maybe as many as three to 4,000 U.S. universities closing within the next decade or so, this being, you know, a couple of years back that he said that, so we can, you know, we're at the beginning of that period still. And now I see it as quite realistic in possibly something that happens in the next two years. I'm already hearing about smaller schools closing up here and there, so, or planning to close up. So I don't know with regard to certain systems. Our journalism, I think, is lost for a generation. I don't know who's going to trust it. Our academies are, have put themselves in a deadly position. As for the country itself, I don't know. The resistance hasn't mounted yet, and I don't know how effective and reasonable and informed and um, strong-spined they'll be. But I know that they are mounting at this point where they have not yet done so. Mm. So what does what happens to America if you genuinely lose uh, so many universities? I mean, can it could it possibly be a good thing <laughs> as it, well as terrible? Maybe because you know, I mean, I don't want to go all waxing American exceptionalism and you know, rah rah America America. I am you know rather generally proud of my country and all of that, but I will speak that we do have quite a lot of historically demonstrated resourcefulness. And in particular, our private sector has been rather uh, tremendously resourceful mm. when it can, can be motivated to act. And right now, whereas we say, oh, it looks like this terrible institution that might be crumbling, uh, people who are entrepreneurially minded see that and say, oh, here's a massive opening in the market that wasn't there before. The The cost of entry, the barrier to entry into the kind of alternative education model uh, business was more or less insurmountable. And now with massive movements because of COVID, for example, to having to have online instruction, other online instruction venues become much more credible and much more able to even possibly get accredited that are outside of that normal system. And then simultaneously, when you have people f fleeing from uh, the, the university model, which has, has taken on this very, you know, institutionalized position, there becomes a, a huge market for a bare bones, cut and dry education. We're going to teach you math. We're going to teach you science. We're going to teach you literature. No BS. So that kind of very pared down pragmatic thing that Americans tend to be very excitable and very excited to sell to people 
and also it being one of the easier things to start to create. Um, there's a massive market opening up for that that didn't exist before. So will American ingenuity uh, kick us in that direction? I don't know. I talked to an analyst earlier today who was talking about how he's been predicting for two decades that there would have to be some, he'd put it in some very complicated, you know, mathematical attractor language, but that we were in one set, we're trapped in one one cycle on, on by the, the institutional weight that we had, and that it would eventually have to shift into a different, or to orbiting around a different attractor as technology progressed. And this, he said, might be, meaning coronavirus in particular, but now this, this other series of changes might be the thing that finally pushes and separates, oh, the old academy decided it wanted to go this way, time for a you know, new wild west of educational opportunity and accreditation op opportunities. So we might be in a good situation, but it doesn't look like it at the moment. I find it quite incredible when I've looked at some of the evergreen stuff and I've interviewed Benjamin Boyce and some of the stuff, it's like people are persuading students to hate them. You know, you've got a straight, <laughs> a straight white man basically saying, I'm, the I'm still going to keep this well-paid position, but at the same time, I want you to pretty much hate straight white old men. I just mm -hmm. don't get that. I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. It's so bizarre. It's um, definitely, there's, there's this weird feeling like, of course, the person doesn't want to give up their position of power and influence, especially if they see themselves as the noble reformer who's going to facilitate change or whatever. They, I think a lot of these people see themselves as like great civil rights heroes of the past, whereas, sorry guys, that's us now. They're pushing back against you. Um, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're so, there's so much in this ideology that's based on kind of self-loathing that they're content to create entire positions out of self-loathing and then maintain them. And then they have this active nobility where finally it gets to the point where they can't anymore. I'm going to step down for a woman of color and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, and this huge, like, act. It's like there's all this self-flagellation, like psychologically, you can kind of see it. It's, it's self-flagellating. I'm giving in. I'm doing the thing. Oh, the passion of George Bridges. And then all of a sudden at the end, you know, he, he, he sacrifices himself for the, for the uh, you know, minoritized group member. And there's something to the psychology that's, that there, it's just something about this whole ideology that makes people think that way. Well, it's quite religious, isn't it? Perhaps he should have just become a Catholic. Then he could have done all that. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Somewhere in the scriptures. That, I know. It's, there's it's something, to, something about it. And yeah, it's very faith-like. Um, you know, now it's not angels and demons, but systemic forces of oppression and liberation and the whole mythology just kind of transports over, but you got to sprinkle in some Scientology, you know, you got to like check with yourself and uh, I don't know what, what exactly they do. Something about volcanoes and aliens and I don't even something. No, I have no idea. Um, I do wonder, I, I talked with um, Gad Sad and I asked him and he disagreed with me, but I wonder if, if we were still religious, if this, if this sort of, this sort of fevered, belief and I'm not I'm a I'm what I call a gold star a star atheist I've never believed in God ever in fact I used to be more extreme and sort of call myself an anti-theist mm -hmm. but is the is it if the human condition lends itself in so many different cultures that are untouched by each other throughout history to find a religion is 
is this just a natural thing that will happen where there's a vacuum where there is no there's organized religion sort of um recedes somewhat it's a really hard question. Um, I don't necessarily think that you would see, I do think you would see first, instead of what I don't think you'd see, I think you would see the quest to create sociological structures that provide meaning and moral guidance that people can look to. I don't think you would see necessarily this kind of very panicky, uh, very high moral purity, very extremist, thing filling the vacuum necessarily. I mean, it could be something a lot more like airy-fairy and spiritual very easily that fills these needs. And if you were to build the right sociological structures and communities around it, that could fill that gap, right, that people are looking for, which is mostly meaning-making structures and moral law that they can mm -hmm. follow so they know how to be a good person and fit in with other good people and have a purpose in life in terms of that vision of being good and righteous. But it's not necessarily the case that it would become obsessed with moral purity and righteousness. That takes another ingredient, at least one other ingredient. And I think that ingredient in this case is uh, this panic that the, the, that the other side, whatever it is, the, the other spiritual forces are winning and going to take away any possibility of the good thing and turn everything very evil. So there's this obsession with kind of, um, it's, it's feeling out of control, if you really wanna ask me what I think is that extra ingredient. They feel like the world is out of their control. We have these problems that we're facing, like climate change. We have these problems that we're facing, like the possible rise of, of you know, populist movements that may or may not look fascist. We have lots of changes globally in terms of what's going on and people feel out of control and that desire to assert control leads people into these kind of puritanical campaigns to find that which goes against their sense of control in the world. When I looked into the psychology of religion a few years ago and, and really dug into that, one of the three primary things that psychologically it seems that people turn to religion to satisfy is a sense of control in the world. And I think that these kind of puritanical movements like we see with the, the woke or critical social justice movement, I think those are a result of a crisis of that control axis rather than say meaning making or um, community building. Mm. And obviously we have, I, you know, this generation that are like in their mid twenties, they've seen their face reflected back to them in a million different ways on a daily basis. It's, you know, I remember I'm in my mid forties. You would go on holiday, you would take some photos, you would take it down to the shop and two weeks later, and you'd be delighted if there was just something in focus. You know, it was very rare that you'd sort of want to show everybody that photo. So I think it's, it's quite a dangerous thing to see yourself reflected back at you all the time. That's probably right. And actually that's a very interesting point that probably speaks to, you know, even the title of your podcast. Um, it is unprecedented in human history, I think, that we are actually able to interface with a social environment where we literally can construct a persona out of ourselves. And I'm not, in fact, not even just one. Many people have multiple social media accounts. And even if you're like I am and you try to represent yourself as yourself on each one, I do have kind of the person that I present to Twitter, the person, the side of me I present to Facebook because they're, they're their structures are different. The person I show to the gram is a little bit different. 
But then you can imagine people who have multiple accounts that have different purposes, not even necessarily anything, you know, like they have a trolling account or whatever. I just mean different purposes, like a focused account for their business or whatever. And now they're having to portray yet another person. So there's this constant engagement with creating one's persona. And that persona can be very disintegrated. And then your ability to live through those proxy personas that you're creating and that the internet is creating back for you constantly in a sort of feedback loop is I think unprecedented in human history. And to the point where matters of one's identity, rather than being something you have to grapple with in terms of what you encounter in life, become things that you have to grapple with in terms of things you construct. And so you can go on the blog on the internet, on Tumblr or whatever, and by engaging with an endless stream of pictures and propaganda and in your own kind of narcissism, you can deconstruct your gender, not know who you are anymore and come out without one. And then say that the world needs to accommodate this because in your world, that's how everything works. And this is a very interesting feature of our time. And a part of me is like, you know, I get into that pessimistic, oh no, this, this is unmanageable. And part of me is, you know, no, this is new and human beings figure new things out quite well. And so of course it looks really bad before we figure out how to handle it. And maybe it's not as bad as we think. But right now that doesn't change the fact that it's causing real damage. Um, especially in young people, there's massive amounts of confusion about, you know, sex, gender, sexuality, and so on. And some of that is causing real damage and, and now causing people to, uh, other than like the individual damage, it's also causing real damage in terms of sending people on like witch hunts against each other and mm. attacking people and making sure that the online or the, the identity that they present is picture perfect at all times, um, airbrushed of any mistake, lest you have to be canceled and downloaded out of existence. It's a very bizarre phenomenon. And I, I do worry about our young people who are kind of growing up in that. And then I worry less about our younger people who are learn growing up learning the mistakes of their older siblings and, and young parents uh, who, who've already started to mess that up. Well, there was a job advert. So we have, um, they call themselves a help group charity called Mermaid's Gender. Um, and I've had a, a, encounters with them because they're the ones who reported me to the police for saying you shouldn't transition children. And they put out a job advert. I mean, A, they, they advertise in the middle of Minecraft videos, uh, which I think is terrible. They're also in all our schools. So it's a, it's a big reach that they've got. Uh, and they recently had an advert for a job where it basically said you had to hand over all of your social media accounts. And if they found after they'd employed you that they found one that you hadn't told them about, you would get the sack. You'd basically just lose your job. I mean, it's, that's insane levels of prying into people's private thoughts. Yeah, that's, a, that's another aspect of it too, because people believe, I mean, we can talk about it from the position of the ideology and how it thinks about the world, but we can also just talk about it in terms of the practicalities that you get familiar with online. And there is this weird kind of expectation that has arisen with the social media kind of panopticon culture where we can always see what people are doing. You know, I send you a message and it says whether or not you've seen it, whether you've responded or not. I mean, that's weird. It's actually weird. So then it's like, why didn't you answer my message? And I was like, because I was doing other stuff. That's that. like you were talking about, you know, the photographs when we were younger. I'm roughly your same age. So, I, you know, if you miss the phone call, you just missed it. I remember having a telephone with no answering machine when I was a child mm. because 
only some people had those. And if you missed the phone call, you just missed it. If you missed a television show, you just missed it. If you missed your friend at the store or, you know, or the park or whatever, you just missed them. And that was what it was. And now there's this weird expectation to be able to see inside of what people are doing all the time and how they're mm. interacting with, with your information. Did you like the thing I put on Facebook or not? I saw you didn't like my post. What's going on? Are you mad at me? Blah, blah, blah. So there's this weird, you know, wanting to look inside the head. Now, if we mesh that with the ideology that the woke scholarship operates on, it fundamentally makes sense because it believes that people are filled with wrong thought that they're constantly hiding from the world. They call it, you know, masking or they speak in coded language. There's all of these things where they believe that the oppression is hidden, you know, whether it's hatred of women, whether it's hatred of gays, whether it's hatred of trans people, whether it's hatred of race, it's hidden within the person. And so the goal is, of course, you have to be able to see, they believe that people are very good at hiding it, even from themselves with false consciousness. And so you have to be able to see completely inside of their own head, every corner of their mind to find out where that oppression is and push it out. I mean, this obsessive focus on implicit biases and unconscious biases, this digging into the unconscious of people to try to, you know, psychologize the evil out of them. That's, that's a poisonous way to think about the world. I think there's, there's much space and much need for like a declaration of privacy as a fundamental right of human, like at least the privacy of your own mind, but I think you should have the privacy of your own home. You should be able to set the privacy of your own social media presence and so on. And a lot of people are very upset about that. Um, so I would really hope like with the example that you said with, with workplaces that legislation could actually be put in place. It's no, worker workplaces have no right to request that stuff they have absolutely no right to request that stuff but until we get over our obsessive fear that we're we're associating ourselves with the wrong kinds of people who have the wrong kinds of thoughts or beliefs this prying desire to find out who they are continues it's exactly the same as what we saw in like witch hunts um mm. you know centuries ago well, I, I wonder if we took on board their methodology or their purpose to try and dig inside their head. So the people that want to know every one of our thoughts and everyone, everything that we did, I wonder what is lurking in the back of their brains that they have this desire. Because I don't think it's, I don't think it's honestly a, a good desire. I don't think it, it's even a byproduct. I think it's plain. I think it's evil. I think it it's is. really it nasty. It's, I, I, I mean, let's play the game. You're not supposed to, but we're dangerous here. Let's, well-behaved humans have rarely made history, they say. So let's play the game. What's inside their head? Cluster B personality disorders or is what's inside their head. I'll just say it. I'm almost positive cluster B personality disorders are inside their head. Envy is inside their head. Envy, uh, paranoia, cynicism, narcissism, those things are inside their heads. Uh, the the same kinds of motivations that if we said, oh, well, we did a careful analysis of the writings of witchcraft hunters, witch hunters, and these are the various kinds of personality traits we discovered as likely to be present, we would find the exact same ones. Mm. And again, I'm really serious about the likelihood that cluster B personality disorders are um, relevant here, the kind of your dark triad sort of stuff going on. And the reason is because a, it seems obvious when you start interacting with these people and seeing how how selectively abusive and selectively you know charitable they are and, and the way that they approach the world. 
but also because it makes sense. If you think about the internet empowering certain people, like if you think of society in a sense as a set of social rules and norms that prevent certain kinds of bad actorship from, among other things, that prevent certain kinds of bad actors Mm -hmm. from getting uh, unfair access to power. And then you look at the radical change of our social environment brought on by the internet and you think, well, who is online most? Well, it's social misfits were online most because they weren't going out and hanging out with their friends. So they were the earliest and most significant adopters. And when you start looking at the way that they behave on these kind of blogs where they start building their identities, if you pay attention, you can see these kind of willful moves into personality disorders. I mean, these people proudly display, I say cluster B personality disorder, like I'm psychologizing somebody from afar. I'm sorry, your Twitter bio says you have BPD. You say you have borderline personality disorder. So why am I wrong for saying you said you have, you know, Mm. It, it's it's very, very clear, though, that the behavior in these blog platforms is consistently pointing toward, let's hold up our personality disorders or personality defects as um, not something to, to grow out of or challenge or understand or cope with, but rather something to embrace as an identity. And once you embrace anything as an identity... And we talked, you mentioned the anti-theist thing earlier. I did the same thing with atheism. I got all anti-theistic. Once you start embracing something as an identity, you start leaning into it and looking for ways to express it. And you start to manifest that into yourself and believe it about yourself. And again, you start constructing that identity. So I see, I've seen their blogs on Tumblr. Unlike most scholars, I screw around going and looking into the dark corners of the internet to see what people who claim to believe this stuff are really saying. And you, I mean, like the mental illness Tumblr world is just out of control where they're, they're validating each other's will to identify by these mental illnesses. And of course, then yell at anybody who says that they have them say, you know, you don't have the authority to call me that even if you're a doctor. Um, so that's, I, I think that plus a lot of envy, um, not to, again, not to make it up, not to just assume it. You read it in their literature again and again, you know, why are you a critical something scholar instead of a regular something scholar? And they write, well, I tried to do real, I tried, well, they don't say real, I tried to do academic literature in this and I, I wasn't succeeding or I started a, a business, this one sticks out to me, it was a, it's in the di- critical nutrition studies and diet studies. And so this, this woman, I think in Canada, but I'm not positive where, opened a diet clinic and tried to put something like, you know, her holistic take on indigenous herbs or something that she probably made up or saw in some bogus online class and her business, whatever it was, it could be hundred percent real. It doesn't matter. It failed. Her business wasn't working. And then rather than saying, wow, the market's not actually interested in that, or I'm not doing it right. Or I need to up my, my game to sell something that people aren't sure about people who look for a dietitian maybe aren't looking for herbs. Maybe they're looking for food advice. Um, no, it wasn't that. It was that the entire society was was against her way of doing things. They said the same thing in this book about, again, remember, we're talking about nutrition and diet, dietitians. And I mean, I can name these people, Lucy Offermore and Jackie, uh, Jackie Gringas, for the, the real people. You can look them up. They're talking about the need to put poetry into the nutrition. And like your nutrition business <laughs> failed because you're, you're coming at it with poetry. What a shock. And then they're like, oh, that's because people don't value other ways of knowing. So we switched and became more critical of the, the prevailing ways of knowing. And it's like, well, you just failed. You failed and you became upset. I read a paper about, uh, about wanting to remake mathematics to get the, 
objective bias out of or obje the belief in objectivity out of math entirely. And it starts off with like math is my C minus subject. I've always hated math. I don't actually know if I even hate math because I was never good at it and good at it enough to know. So it's like, you're going to remake our education in mathematics. You're just mad that you had bad grades in it. Yeah, I get it. Math is hard, but the envy of people who are good at math naturally is showing right through in the stuff you mm -hmm. write. And this isn't like, Oh, here's two or three examples. This is, I mean, it's not like everything they write, but it's shot through you very rarely, if you scratch the surface, do you not find the green-eyed monster right underneath um, with, with what's going on. So if we want to get inside their heads, I'm content. I've read reams of their literature. I've interacted mm. with reams of their social media. The patterns are quite clear. Um, the, the forms of bullying they take online fit the description. Um, so I think that's what's going on in their heads. They can't help but reveal themselves, I think, often. They sort of think that they're, they're sort of well covered. And I think it's just, it's very clear. So with the cluster B then, has that, has that always been? Are we doing it to our, are we basically encouraging in our children by never using the word no, not parenting them properly? Or is this just a sort of phenomenon that was, that's just too perfect to, to happen? You know, I think it's multiple things all at once, of course. The, something this big and extreme doesn't just pop out of nowhere. There certainly is an issue, though. I mean, entitlement in children is something that's, you know, hard to work out of children. Children, there's a, so much toddler temper tantrum stuff. And, and you do get the impression that these are people who've never been told no, who mm. always wanted to be recognized just because they showed up and tried. That's that envy, right? I tried, they tried. How come they get the award and I don't get the award? Well, because they did better than you, you know? And it's like, well, I tried too. You know, my effort counts for something. My identity matters. And then it's like, oh, I see. So there is an element to this where I don't know, you know, I'm very hesitant based on, what I've seen about the influences of parenting, although it's probably something that it turns out that statistically, from what I understand of the science, replication crisis alert, who knows, but uh, parenting has a relatively small fraction of influence on how people actually grow up. It's like it sets an infrastructure and it's good and it's important to try to parent right, but it's much more the educational spheres that they run in and it's much more the, the social circles that they run in as they get above, you know, seven or eight years old um, that really make the difference. And parents become something like five to 10% of the overall outcome. So if you have a, uh, if the time they're spending in school is, you know, focused entirely on self-esteem rather than, than competence, that's going to set up a real problem with kids that don't know how to fail. I, for myself, I was actually telling this story the other day. I've practiced martial arts for, since I was 16. So for literally my entire adult life. And I've done a variety of different martial arts at different times. And it's hard. And if you want to be good, it's really hard. And I hate to sound like the corny thing, but you have those days where you went and you tried and either you just got beat up sometimes or more often what it gets you is when you've been working really hard on something or you think you've been working really hard on something and then it comes to it and either you lose the fight or the match or you just the worst is when you just get told by your teacher who's you know you esteem his his respect is something you're trying to earn 
and and I say his because my teachers have all been male as it happens. I, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> and well, there are wonderful women martial artists. It's definitely mm -hmm. true. I just haven't trained with any um, I, as my teacher. But you know, you covet that pride, and then they're like. Well, I mean, sometimes one of my teachers is Chinese and they don't really have political correctness. So they're like, you suck, right? They're like, you suck. You actually suck. And you come home and you're devastated. And it's like you're showering when you come home from the, from the workout or whatever. And you're just like depressed and like crying in the shower or whatever. And then being able to, to deal with that setback and rally and grow and steal yourself to admit that you know what, that was on me and I do need to do better. You don't just get a prize for showing up because in training, you can, you can give somebody a prize for showing up, but if it's a fight, that's not how it works. And if you've, mm. you've trained somebody to believe that showing up is enough, you're going to train somebody to get punched in the mouth because they haven't, you have to be able to perform. There's, you know, you're interacting with reality in a way where there's no forgiveness for, you know, your effort doesn't count for anything. The other guy's skill is everything versus yours. And so you just get devastated. I mean, I remember specifically being very worried to go to a training workshop that I was traveling to and thinking on the airplane, uh, flying actually to China. And I was thinking, you know, oh, what if he's all disappointed with me? What if he's, what if he's critical of me all the time? I can't, I can't take being criticized all the time. And I'm thinking that. And then suddenly my thought pattern switched, you know, somewhere over the Arctic. And I thought, no, if he's criticizing me, it's because he cares. It means he wants me to get better. And of course he criticized me, told me I sucked one way up and down the other, you know, the whole time. But it, it takes not being affirmed in every stupid thing you do in order to whittle away the good from the bad. And if you cultivate a, a, a psychology of entitlement, you can't really be surprised when, when adults who have never been told no don't know how to handle being told no. They don't have that resilience. They don't have that well to draw from where, where life has been hard and rough on them. And it's, you see the fruits. You see the fruits. Mm. Well, I, I find it quite odd that in schools, we think that the way to, to create high self-esteem is to sit around in a circle time you know even at primary school and talk about how we feel good and i just think well maybe if a girl a little girl or a little boy who was absolutely rubbish at their times tables properly mastered them that one day then that's going to make them feel incredible much more than some lip service about let's all be kind to each other yeah so i sat down one time with this this group that called me in for for interviews for some film they were making and it was a student group at a university, some student film that they were making. And they invited me out and they flew me out there. And I went and I sat down with these four people, two men and two women, all, you know, seniors in college or juniors in college, something like this. And um, the one that invited me did most of the talking and asking me of questions. And then each other person got to ask me a few questions at the end. And they saved the best for last. They saved this this wonderful young Mexican-American woman, and she sat down across from me, and you, you, knowing my background, the joke becomes apparent automatically. She's like, hi, and I'll leave her name out of it, but she says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm the chief student diversity officer of this university. Yeah, right? And I'm like, oh, no. What is about to happen? Because I've just like unloaded on how terrible this whole thing is for like two hours with her in the room. <laughs> and so she tells me this story 
about herself where she was a sophomore and now she's a senior. When she was a sophomore, she was offered the post on the diversity board. And her question that she wanted to ask me was, what advice would I give to that sophomore who's being offered money and power stipend uh, status to cash in on their identity? Because she actually had come to regret. She started, she didn't, hadn't quit the diversity office. She was still the chief diversity officer. But as it turned out, she wasn't willing to do the real diversity work anymore. And she only kind of did small stuff like the vegan meals in the cafeteria, you know, little small inclusion kind of things. And she was handing off all the big, ugly stuff that the diversity office did because she couldn't believe in it. And she felt very conflicted. And, you know, I, so I thought she was going to go lay into me. And it turns out that she's like having this weird confession to me and asking me this question. And I just asked her, you know, well, do you want to feel proud of your work or do you want to feel like it was handed to you? You know, after a lot of waffling around trying to figure out how this happened and what's going, you know, what's going on. But that was the point of my response. And she was like, yeah, that's kind of what I started to realize is, you know, I get money, I get status, I get a stipend, I get power. And there's no pride in my work because I didn't get it because I earned it. And she's like, I don't think no matter how hard I work, I don't think I can ever prove that I deserved this position because I just got it because of who I happen to be. And so um, there's something there, right? There's some, your self-esteem, you can patch over your self-esteem by saying the feel good stuff. And sometimes you do have to kind of go into that therapeutic soft world and not coddle, but, you know, coddle a little bit, somebody who's had a rough day or something really bad has happened. There's a time and a place where that's the right thing to do. But self-esteem in, in, in the genuine sense comes from genuine accomplishment against adversity. You, you feel that same devastation I feel in the shower, or I would feel in the shower when I had a failure of training and told that I suck. Imagine the reverse of that when it's like, yeah, you finally got it you know, because that happens too. Like, wow, you know, I get told by, by my teacher, this thing you're doing, this time I have no corrections for you. And it's like, I'm five years later and I remember the time he said I have nothing to correct. You know, it's like <laughs> special because you accomplished something. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where, it's, and then that's a, that's a real self-esteem that ties to a real self-confidence in the sense that you know that you can go out and be an independent an autonomous person. So I think that our schools have got the idea and our, in a lot of ways, our culture has got the idea of, of accomplishment and in, in, in self-esteem and self-worth completely backwards. And it came probably from the place of best intentions. Mm. Like, no, let's not hurt people's feelings. Oh, it hurts people's feelings when you tell them they suck at math. Maybe that discourages them from wanting to be in, to do math. And so we, we, we have the leaky pipeline that people fall out of. Um, and we don't want the pipeline to leak. So let's patch it up and let's not tell anybody that they're bad. And let's, 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 you know, prop them up. And I think it's a lot of parents and, 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 and just, like I said, broader culture too, where I th I'm not thinking of parents in the sense of, um, how they parent, but in the ways that they interact, say with like coaches, it's like, why doesn't my kid get the start on the football team? Why doesn't my kid get to get to have a trophy? You know, this whole like agitating like parent, like this whole kind of weird entitled parent thing where it's like my kid has to be super special so I can live my proxy through them. That was a thing, you know, when a little bit younger than I was is when it really started to ramp up. And I think even my brother, who's just a few years younger than I am, got touched by it a little bit, but not badly. And so 
that sort of like the helicopter parenting sort of mentality, I think that really screwed a lot of kids up and created a whole culture of entitlement. And if you don't have real self-esteem, but you're constantly looking for it, uh, and you don't have anything to fall back on, like, oh yeah, well, everybody got a trophy at the math contest. So how special am I? If you don't have anything to fall back on, whatever your accomplishments might have been, then you hit this weird vacancy place. Now, I don't want to throw it all out, by the way, and say, oh, well, this is all these terrible things we screwed up. There are some real problems in the world. They're agitating it too, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about the mix of forces. The, the middle class we have, because of whatever set of things, the middle class is hollowing out a bit. Money is concentrating near the top again. People do feel like they've been you know, they've had their opportunity in life, especially in the United States, taken away from them. Our healthcare battles, our student loans, which are just astronomical. So many of my friends who are even slightly life uh, left-leaning here in the U.S., you can't talk to them for five minutes and them not almost throw a fit about the fact that they were told that there's no path to a good job in our, our economy without going to college and adopting $200,000 in debt to do it. That is now, you know, the, that's more than their, I have friends who have more student loan, three times as much student loan as their mortgage. And when you, yeah, you saddle people with that kind of thing. Um, that's a big problem. So that, that's a structural problem that was, you know, other causes came into that. Some of those are like university politics. Some of those are bad uh, loan underwriting uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and guarantee policies. Some of that is, and the perception of on the left is very mad, like our right wing won't give an inch toward anything like social insurance or, or anything of the sort. You know, we can't even get decent healthcare. Our healthcare costs are insane. Why? And then the Republicans have tried to defund Obamacare for the 57th time, you know, and that's what you see. And so there's this huge rage there too. So I don't want to say it's all, oh, we have these entitled kids. They've been raised to be snowflakes or it's not that. It's that they've been raised to be snowflakes and they're getting screwed in many serious regards. So they don't have the resilience. A lot of them are trying, but they're saddled with massive amounts of debt. A lot, and there's a lot going on that's all kind of really toxic. And guess what lies in there? (laughs) Envy, desire to to tear the system down that's screwing them over, resentment. It's a toxic stew. It's kind of a, it's, I sort of think life now is very uh, quick fix, transactional, lack of purpose. Um, Couldn't have been more aptly. I watched one of your videos yesterday, actually, that you did with Joe Rogan. And the advert beforehand was a guy who was like, do you ever ever think of a word and you can't quite think of it? Well, we've got an app for that. And I was like, what? Just (laughs) read, read some books, have some conversations. Like sometimes think for more than 30 seconds about the word you're gonna find. But it's just so symptomatic of everything. It's like your self-esteem is bad. Well, don't do something to work on it. Um, We'll just tell you you're great. Right. Yeah. Here's this app that'll make you feel good in in like Mm. the next 30 seconds. I read this thing. I mean, I know we're getting a little bit out there, but I read this thing a long time ago when the, when the, it was about television programming for young children. I don't know if it's true. This is the problem with everything now. I don't know if anything's true, <laughs> but I read this thing about television programming with young children, and it did, what it was tracking is how long the average scene lasted before it jumped to the another to the next scene. So, like you know, you can imagine it's got that sharp jump cut. Once you talk about this, by the way, you can see you can't not see it. And so it was talking about how 
you know, you look at Sesame Street in the U.S. context, at least, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, and you're talking, you know, 90 to 100 seconds for a scene, and then it jumps to the next scene. And then by the time it got to, I don't even know what the relevant shows were by this point with the kids, but it was like 12 seconds. And so the point that the author was making is that a lot of important neurological growth happens in the space of being bored. Like reality is actually slow. Mm. Change in reality is slow. And there's this like weird dopamine thing going on where you have to keep their attention as best you can by constantly flashing a thing in front of every, I think it might've been talking about ADD or something like that. And as a hypothesis for maybe how that might be on the rise because we're not, forcing children to go through a developmental process of just being bored and dealing with the fact that the world is slow. Nobody's taking, as you said, 30 seconds to think about the world or 30 minutes to read another article and maybe the word comes to them or 30 minutes to go outside and go for a walk or to try to, you know, interact with the garden or something like that and just experience the world in real lifetime mm. without that constant flash, 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 new thing, new thing, new thing. And I think there might be something to that as well. Uh, I know that for myself, I've had so many messages, especially since I went on Joe Rogan, uh, but also preceding that ever since the, the rioting started and the world decided I know how to explain all of this. I've been <laughs> on a rocket ride um, for about six weeks. I have had, okay, so this actually happened to give you an idea. Um, earlier today, I was trying to just keep up. I was trying to do a little bit of Twitter. I think I was eating when I, one phone, phone in my hand and food in the other. And I'm like trying to do this. And it's like, I ended up trying to take a screenshot of some mental thing on Instagram about therapy. So I could put it on Twitter and I couldn't take the screenshot because the notifications kept popping up on my screen so fast. So I was like, I'm gonna count the notifications. So I counted them for a few minutes and then I waited. And then I counted them again for a couple of minutes and I waited and I figured out roughly how many. And I was like, I think I'm getting, and I'm just, I have my settings put pretty, low on terms of in terms of what I will accept as a notification a push notification on my phone and I got like 170 of them in an hour if we extrapolate out so that hour it's like I had 170 things flash on my screen that's like something every 20 20 or 30 mm. seconds or 20 seconds or so and it's like this has led me for the past six weeks I've noticed it many times and I've paid a willful effort when I notice that it's happening to stop whatever I'm doing I go outside where the world is slow again and I call it dopamine brain it's like I can't think clearly. And in fact, I get kind of anxious if something else isn't happening right away. And I, there's something to what it does to your brain to marinate in new, 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 new all the time. Nothing ever slows down. You can't ponder anything. You can't just, like when I was a kid, I know this is like the lamest story in the world, but I used to lay there and watch the ceiling fan. Like I could just watch the thing spin for like 30 minutes and you're like, that's, you know, were you special? Um, but what it really was is that I was trying to do tricks where it's like, could I follow one blade? Could I move my eyes in a way quick enough to make that one blade not be a blur anymore? Or, you, you know, something like this. There was different little, you know, can I find a, can I make a pattern out of what's happening? And so a ceiling fan becomes entertaining because I didn't have anything else to do. Uh, you know, it was like adult shows time on TV. Who wants to watch that crap? You know, so mm. Uh, there were only five channels or whatever. And the, now it's the news. Who's watching that? Well, let's watch the ceiling fan instead. And um, you don't get that now. And I don't get that now. I just get this dopamine like cannon. And I, it, there's, it's not good. It's not good no. for the way that we think. 
It's, it's, as you said, it turns you into a very transactional way of thinking. I noticed I start getting frustrated. It's like I got frustrated with something like I forgot what it was, some piece of fruit or something. It was like not doing what I wanted it to do. It's like I couldn't just like swipe it away, like swipe away the, the grapes or whatever because, you know, the, the little stem was still sticking out or something. And it's like that. That's not good psychology to no. have that kind of instant gratification. Um move on to the next thing immediately that's not giving me exactly what I want out of it, struggle with nothing, accomplish nothing uh, approach. So yeah, something's weird about all of this. I don't mean to sound like a Luddite. I mean, I love technology. I live on my phone. My wife hates it. Um, but Yeah, my husband too. <laughs> he goes a bit nuts. Well, we've got four children. So we've got 11 to 18 um, our kids. Oh, that's party time too. Yeah, it's great. Actually, my two older ones who should be the most difficult, a, a breeze. Um, but we just say sometimes, look, we're just going to have a day without technology. And it's like I've, it's like I've just said, I'm going to sever your legs from the knees. <laughs> no, that's so good though. Cause it's like you do, you have to, I've been trying to cultivate an ethic for myself and promote the ethic that real life is what happens when you're not online. Mm. It, like you interact we were talking about the identity thing earlier you're interacting via a proxy of yourself with proxies of other people so there's like at least one depending on how you want to count it or two layers of separation from one human to the other and that's not a that's not a real interaction it's not to say real interactions can't happen but in general especially in public facing like if you're texting with somebody maybe it's that's fine but when you're like in your social media public facing presence, it's proxy with proxy. It's like, it's not real. Somebody asked me, they're like, how do you not lose your mind with all the nasty stuff people say to you on Twitter? And I was like, it's like a video game. It's like, no, it's real. Mm. It's like if the character on the video game screen said something to me, I wouldn't care. It's a program. Like you really think, but those are people. I'm like, well, they're people interacting through a program where they're projecting a persona. Some of them are more real than others. And some of them I kind of know, so I can kind of tell, but most of them I don't know. So I don't know. And I can't tell. I don't know if the person I'm talking to is a bot. I don't know if it's a troll. I don't know if it's a 15 year old pretending to be a scholar. I don't know if it's a scholar with a personality disorder. I don't know who I'm talking to. And that little avatar that they put forth doesn't turn them into a real person who's really communicating with me. It took me a long time to learn that. Mm. And so the opposite side of that is, well, what happens Real life is what happens when you stop doing that. You start thinking of all of your virtual interactions with the exception of like text messages with people you actually know, or maybe calls like this. You start thinking of all interactions that happen virtually as virtual. Then what's real is what happens when you have your technology free day. So good for the, the poor legs cut off, bleeding from, from their <laughs> veins, children. <laughs> to experience a little bit of that you know they mm. can tell they can tell a story in a few years my parents were so awful they would have technology free days could you imagine having to be outside and do things or talk to people did you I know, know there's these things called cards <laughs> it's so bizarre i mean i i do this right so i do a number of things where i i promote the the fact that we should be able to say women are adult human females and for that i've been banned from twitter permanently um, I've been banned from Mumsnet, which is a huge parenting site, and my Posey Parker, which I used to be, that is who I was online, just because That's it right. came from like 14 years ago, um, and that was banned. And so what we've decided to do is take back the public square in the actual 
public square. So going and speaking at Speaker's Corner and -hmm. actually saying the words out loud in the ether for other people to hear and also say, so they stop becoming unsayable. It's so, it's so powerful to actually stand in front of people and for, you can see the relief. I mean, there were yet two young women traveled like 200 miles at the weekend because they'd lost all their friends. They don't feel they can talk at college anymore. Um, so for you guys that would sort of still be schooled because they're 17, 18, they, they don't feel they can speak. And it's, it's so stifling that the real life interaction just gives you just a chance to breathe. Just some, yeah, some breath. That's the thing I'm noticing is, you know, I've now become quite famous, I suppose, for being willing to say rather fearlessly whatever I think. It's only a matter of time until Twitter decides that they don't like that so much or YouTube Mm. takes me down. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with my colleague, Helen Pluckrose, who's like the most mild-mannered, reasonable, um, you know, ethical, principled, like very English, very, very English, English woman that you could possibly imagine. And, you know, if you want to add it in, you know, she's, she's morbidly obese and she's not in great health or she's often has to walk with a stick because of a neurological condition. So she's got some disability. And then it's like, she got invited to a talk and then they, they rescinded the invitation because her presence would be dangerous to other people. And they demonetized one of her videos we recently put up on YouTube because she's not suitable for all advertisers. And she's literally just talking about the history of postmodern philosophy in very plain terms. And so it's like, I understand, you know, people want to hear it. People want to, to feel that. I was actually speaking, you know, the, the specific talk with Helen I'm mentioning was given in um, the National Liberal Club in London last October. So it was at like one Whitehall or something, you know, something important mm. sounding. Mm. And so we're in this very kind of historic, I think it's the same room that, that, that Churchill gave his first speech. And so we're talking with some of the different people, um, you know, that know about these things. And they're talking about the rise of the liberal club and the, the, the history of liberalism in, in the UK with us. And they mentioned how, you know, King wasn't really happy about this back when liberalism first began. They weren't real happy with liberals. And so that it was all like these silent secret meetings that people were having to have in like bars and speakeasies and, and the pubs, I guess, more than bars. And so they'd mm. get together in the pub where there they could trust, you know, that the, you know, the, the, the pub keeper wasn't letting people in that weren't supposed to be there. They had their meeting, you know, it was a closed door meeting, then they could speak freely and they could make plans. And the, the, king wasn't watching and the the church wasn't watching and they could actually say what and it was just such a relief to be able to say what they believed and have other people they could say it with and i mean as you said the gold star atheist we all felt that man when the atheist movement took off it's like finally we can say it you know so i think that this is another moment already where stuff like what you're doing you get out in the public square and you let people hear it and they see people mm. saying it. And I, I say it and people, I get messages every day. It's such a breath of fresh air to see somebody who's willing to say the things I think, but I can't say. And my friend Mike recently said, um, he, I saw it was on Twitter. I, he said, somebody had said that to, to me about something. And Mike replied with something like, just say it. You'll feel better. It'll be a relief. Just start saying it. You'll feel better. Um, it's harder for you because of the laws. So it's much more courageous what you're doing than what I'm doing. Who so. knew? <laughs> Who knew that it would, that, well, A, I didn't realize we didn't really have free speech in the UK. 
until mm -hmm. I said something that apparently was hate speech, but the whole concept of hate speech has to go. It's I just, agree. it's, in, it's just, it doesn't work for anyone because everybody could somewhere find themselves like employment laws in this country. We don't really have very strong employment laws, but if you're a protected characteristic, then you're protected in your employment. We don't really, you know, I could walk down the road and, and I could have loads of abuse shouted at me, but we don't have the hate crime doesn't cover misogyny. And there's lots of feminists who would like it to. And I'm like, no, just abandon the hate laws. They're ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And, and I mean, you don't even have to use the old arguments like, oh, well, you think you can control them, but your speech might be hate speech tomorrow. It's just that it doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't actually serve anybody's interests. Um, the whole thing is like philosophically stupid too. Like you think, like how are you going to keep up with hate speech, which is just going to be slang. Like if you ban a word, they're going to come, it's like a hydra. They're going to be like 50 new words that mean the same thing. Like, in, you know, that's a new one, Karen. Everybody's a Karen now. Mm. That's a clearly pejorative and derogatory term that's being thrown around and everybody kind of has a sense of what it means. But a year ago or two years ago, at least nobody was calling those people. Nobody was saying Karen for that. And mm. so this term has taken on the meaning. And so it's just the hate speech laws are a delusion that you can control people's meaning making capacity with language. Anybody who spent time with a teenager knows that's not possible. <laughs> they start spinning <laughs> slang and like a part of it's a game just to make sure the authorities, meaning their parents or their teachers don't know what they're talking mm. about. And I mean, I've listened to some some of the stuff my kids were saying, and I was just like, what the hell is that? And they're like, oh, you're, you're old. You're not supposed to know, you know, it's so you don't know, but it's a way with it, you know, and then my one daughter's like, oh, I'll tell you though, you know, I'll let you in. It's a way that we put down people who are like, blah, blah, blah. You can't control hate speech. It's just a means to punish people that you want to try to to silence in a moment. You can't control thought that way. You can't really achieve much of anything so it's really just this philosophically fraught concept that makes no sense and then again it does the the thing i said we wouldn't say is true the second the second somebody can turn that on you you're going to get it turned on you and it's not going to work out so right now it's hate speech to say that uh shall I dare say the, the sentence I said on Joe Rogan or Joe said it first. It said it right out of the gate. And I was like, oh man, wow, we're going right for it. Okay. Trans women are trans women. You're not allowed to say that. And it's like, that's literally A equals A and you're not allowed to say it because you have to say A equals B instead. And, um, see, I don't even make that concession. I just say they're men. Because I, I mean, don't think there's any diff. I don't think there's any different. Well, I, I don't think there's a workable difference that would have any impact in law. But I, you know, sure, sure. So I actually like to 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 give some differentiation on that because I want to honor people. I think who are doing the best they can with it, and I want to not honor people who are being bullies with it. So with some of these people, trans uh, women in particular. I'll say, I mean, I know some that are, that are fairly wonderful people. They're actually, some of them are genuinely wonderful people. And okay, you're a trans woman and I'm content to, to do that. She, her, great. And then some of these people are just bullies. And so somebody will say, they'll be, I, this was, I was in a group talking about it the other day and they were like, uh, you know, blah, 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 she, blah, blah, blah. And I just actually interrupted. I was like, please, we're going to call him Charles. 
we're not going to honor this because it's bullshit. Mm. And they're like, you can't dead name. You're one dead naming away from, and I'm like, this is an arbitrary rule. I could change my name right now, claim I'm trans and ruin everybody's life. It's arbitrary. It's fake. No, people who are using this in an abusive way, I'm going to use the, I'm going to turn your power back on you. I'm going to distinguish. You don't get the privilege. People mm. whoever are trying to live their life the way that they feel is most necessary for them to live their life. And, and I'm not going to be such a fool to say it's impossible to tell. You can tell a jerk from a not a jerk. Maybe not initially, but you can start to figure it out. And people who want to abuse it, I'm extending no courtesy. But people who don't want to abuse it, I'm happy to extend a courtesy because life's hard, man. <laughs> do what you got to do. <laughs> be who you are. And if that's helping you, more power to you. But if that's just helping you be an asshole, less power to you. Mm -hmm. We're just going to call you on it. We're in a case in the UK where, and I think you are now in America with um, the young women who are trying to take their college to court and they weren't allowed to refer to the boys that are competing as girls as boys or male bodied. They had to sort of refer yeah, to them as if they were girls. True. So that's actually a thing. So Helen and I together a couple of years ago wrote an essay that we, we called a principled liberal something. I don't remember the title precisely, but a principle in liberal approach, a reasoned approach maybe instead of liberal, uh, to um, trans rights and, and, and basically talking about that issue. And we, we made the whole you know, liberal ethic argument that people are free in liberal societies to be who and how they want to be and so on. There's a limitation, however, in what you can expect other people to acknowledge. You can't demand other people to acknowledge your reality. You actually can't mm. do that. If I have, I mean, just like to jump track to where we know that's the case. If I have some wacky religion and I'm telling you about all these spirits, you can't actually tell me I'm not allowed to believe that. You can't tell me and I can't tell you, no, this is reality and you have to accept it. You can't force somebody else to accept your reality. If I start telling you about the magic aliens and the, and the volcanoes and the Thetans and the Scientology and you just kind of like shake your head, you know, you are under no obligation to accept that because I believe it's reality. So you can't force somebody else to accept your reality. There's a limit. Of course. So then when you hit these issues like the sports and you hit these issues like the bathrooms or, or you know, other similar changing rooms and spaces like that, now all of a sudden, and we almost just had to punt. We said, this is a genuinely different question. And it is a genuinely hard question in some respects, which means we need to have reasonable open debate about it not people just ramming it's this way or the highway down our throat if you want my personal view about the sports i would agree i think almost to the letter with you i don't think that somebody that has uh experienced long-term exposure endogenous exposure to high doses of testosterone is ha has developed a body that's on par with somebody who did not grow up that way mm. and i'm happy to phrase it that way because you also deal, deal with those rare intersex conditions that have, uh, you know, hormonal aberrations. And, and it, it's not to say that such people can't compete in sports, but it is to say, look, something's different here. And you can't compete against women who mm. had nothing. Like if you're way outside, we can, we can, we can define, it is possible to define a normal range for female testosterone levels. And if you're a certain number of standard deviations out of that range or have been, yeah. you don't qualify. 
And so, of course, you can't say, oh, well, she just happened to have low testosterone and that other one had this other genuinely, you know, natal woman had relatively high testosterone, but still within the normal range. Of course, the higher one has some advantages. So what? So what? But if you're far outside of the normal range for some reason, it's like there's this willful denial that statistical analysis can be done and that things can be understood and that it is true that in that there's sometimes some overlapping gray area that has to be worked out but that requires level heads reasonable arguments with the best possible science weighing in on it trying to figure out what the best criteria are i'm actually horrified by the death of women's sports through um a handful of a relative handful of uh boys and men who believe that they are, are better suited to compete as, as women. And even if they identify genuinely as women, it's like, no, you're not in the same category. You're just not trans women. It just takes women the fairness out of sport, doesn't it? Just to, it, you know, sport is supposed to be like the excellence of the human body as far as it can go. I mean, look at a sport like for me, for fighting, right? Look at fighting, look at boxing. They have like 700 weight classes, right? And not really that many, but there are an absurd number of weight mm. classes. Look at like judo in the Olympics. There's an absurd number of weight classes. Uh, it's a very large number. You're talking like with high school wrestling or something in the United States, it's typical, I, I don't remember this. It's like you have kids that weigh like a hundred pounds up to kids who weigh like 240 pounds broken down by like seven or eight pound sections because they know that once you get six or seven pounds away from one another, the advantage is so high that, right. that you have to put them in different categories. The same thing is going to be true for exposure to testosterone or bone mass or you know, bone density or upper body strength or grip strength, which are all, I mean, we talked about, oh, men and women are more similar than they're different. Not in grip strength, they're not. Look at the yeah. charts. They're not. They barely overlap at all. It's too. Or in too cardiovascular, everything. Yeah, it's like, your and sport requires. Why are there those weight classes? They require cutting out as many things. the The goal is to make it as competitive as possible within the people who are competing, so that it comes down more to skill, more to training, more to you know the, that earned claim of 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 competence than it does oh, obviously the big dude just knocked the small dude down, you know, who's mm. interested in that? And so you do see cases in, 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 for instance, mixed martial arts, there's that one trans fighter, Fallon Fox, who beat He's the ever daylights. ever so ladylike. <laughs> ever so. Yo, beat the daylights out of two women, cracked one of their skulls mm. or something terrible like this. I mean, bad injuries bragged about it on Twitter, called the, called the person a turf and said he was proud to beat the living crap out of this person and crack her skull. That's cluster B personality disorder. Hello, why do I think that? But anyway, then ended up getting his ass kicked by, and I did that on purpose, so cancel me if you want, getting his ass kicked by some woman who trained harder and was better. So it is possible, but if it was just straight up like grip strength, the overlap is virtually nil. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. sorry if you and I both grabbed a thing and squeezed as hard as we could squeeze. I can squeeze probably twice as hard as you can. And where that turns into fighting is if I grab your, you know, your arm or your shoulder, or if it's the thing where they're wearing the, the uniform, your, your gi, and grip into that, I can break your grip and you can't break mine. And it's not the same realm. So to make sport sporting, by definition, you have to make the competition relatively fair 
if people want to have an all out open class and compete, let them. That's fine. Mm -hmm. We could, you could have an open class. They do that in some sports. Um, but women's sports will be obliterated by this. Coaches will start preferentially finding trans individuals to fill the women's teams because they're going to start winning all of their of competitions course. that way. And I think so, in some of the poorer countries, they look for women with um, intersex conditions because obviously they, do, they will yeah. have a natural. Um, I know I've kept you a really long time, so I've got a couple more questions. Sure, sure, um, sure. I so ramble, my, so it's, it's my fault. <laughs> it's perfect. It saves me doing any work. Um, you mentioned cluster bees a lot, and I'm totally on board with you. And even on this side of the movement, I've been victim of some hideous behavior by cluster bees. Um, but what's the, what's the payoff for the people around them that, that kind of serve them, that, that deliver their lives, that endorse them? Because I don't believe that everybody thinks a woman, a man who's raped somebody and then goes in a women's prison, I, I don't really think when they say the mantra trans women are women, that they genuinely think that person is a woman. So apart from mob, uh, not being attacked by the mob, what's the trade-off? Because there's got to be something for these sort of mass hysterical lies. So the thing is, and I, I'll, I'll dip back into our, I've said this on so many things, so I hope it keeps getting out there. I'll dip back into our, our discussion about atheism uh, over on your island, um, your friend Richard Dawkins, I know you're all friends on your island. Um, that's, that's our, that's my UK jokes. Um, see, we have a continent. I'm just kidding. So, uh, <laughs> no, but, but in 2011, Richard did a poll about Christian belief with Ipsos Mori. And he, among the questions were, you know, do you consider yourself a Christian? And it was whatever 40 some odd per 50, maybe ish percent said, yes, I forget what the actual statistics were, but it's fairly high. Um, and then one of the other questions was, you know, the actual central doctrine of Christianity is like, do you believe that Jesus Christ was died and resurrected and savior of sins or whatever? And, um, it was like eight or 9%. It was like almost nobody. And they, you know, asked these other questions. So they were able to do the statistics and find out who, and they was, well, why do you believe that you're a Christian? And in that gap of people who say that they're Christian, but don't accept a Christian doctrine, they said, because it makes, I'm a Christian because it makes me a good person. That's what it means to be a good person. And so I think what you have with the people carrying water for this rather extreme, for example, trans stuff, which is extreme by almost any reasonable even glance, they're so scared that they're going to be complicit in oppressing somebody who doesn't deserve it. They're so scared of that label of transphobia. They're so scared of being that bad person who isn't being open-minded enough to hear somebody who is claiming an oppression story that they feel like a good person requires having that super, if you want to say open mind, that, that almost willful blindness to what's mm -hmm. going on. Uh, because otherwise, a credible claim against their moral character would be being made. And normally, that isn't really sticky. But when enough people in your social circle start to feel that way, it becomes very sticky. You don't want to be the one person against everybody that you esteem and value who uh, is against that. So you're not usually going to start, if you wanted to get somebody to carry water for this women's prison issue, you're not gonna start with that example. You're gonna start with some genuinely sad case where a genuine injustice has occurred and talk about, look at this injustice. And that's because 
some people in our society, many people in our society are transphobic. And this is what transphobia means. And here's the hurt it causes. And if you haven't really thought about that, then you might be carrying water for transphobia. Mm. You might be contributing to this kind of harm. And they point out some horrific case of a suicide or something that is, it's a genuine tragedy. There are genuine tragedies around this. And they get that feeling of, I mean, this is everywhere throughout their theory is this, this tying you into moral complicity for these heinous sins like racism and sexism and misogyny mm. and, and transphobia and homophobia. And so they convince you that you might be more complicit in that problem than you've ever been willing to admit. And then it inches along by getting you to defend a little bit more extreme case, a little bit more extreme case, a little bit more extreme case, until finally you're defending clearly like rapes in prison. Because mm -hmm. to not do so would get your good person card that you've now worked so hard to get, it'll get it revoked from you. And so this is when you said earlier that you think it's evil, this is why I think that word applies. And that's because it's manipulating literally the best parts of people to lead yeah. them into something that drives a very radical agenda that serves a very small number of people that actually harms the majority of the people, in fact, that it claims to be helping. Mm. And in this case, it, the trans activism, you want to talk. So as long as we're getting in trouble on your podcast, <laughs> it mostly works out to the advantage of a small proportion of autogynephilic men who are extremely aggressive about their kink. And that's yeah. what it is. Or yeah, well, men, who want to pretend yeah. and, and manipulate. Well, predators and people with paraphilias like pedophilia, for example, we know that those men joined the damn church. You know, they, they gave their life to the church so they would have access to the children that they wanted to rape. I, I think it's quite incredible that people don't think that that compulsion to enact your paraphilia is an extraordinarily strong and that people will go to, to great lengths. Um, to the point that I think these autogynephiliac men are actually using the bodies of children, i.e. the children that we are in America, you are slicing the breasts off of very young teenage girls mm -hmm. and the puberty blockers and the money that's made. And I've had conversations where people think I mean for saying, why don't you just wait until that child is 18 and see if they've consistently, persistently, whatever silly nonsense words they use. Um, and they felt that way for like 10 years because most of us, we don't feel like that. Um, we don't feel the same as we did when we were 12 or 13 or 14 or, or the first time we really fancy the pants of someone. You know, our life changes dramatically through, through our puberty. Right, right. Yeah. And of course, they lose their mind if you bring that up. And there is, there's always that kernel of truth. You can say, oh, well, once they go through puberty, then all these changes that are irreversible, blah, blah, blah. But of course, they don't point out the fact that if you start messing with the hormones early on, you create other irreversible problems. They don't talk about the atrophying and uh, sometimes uh, was it desiccation and abscessing of, of vaginas that happens mm -hmm. on early hormone therapy with, with testosterone. They don't talk about the fact that doing a double mastectomy on a child or a teen is that that's not growing back. It's like you don't, the 19 year old that wakes up and says, I didn't, I don't think I really wanted that can't undo it. And um, so what you talk about with it saying use it, that, that these, these particular activists are using these children there's a degree to which that's actually true uh, from what I've talked to many of these 
uh, young women who are, are detransing now who have been pulled into this and have left it that it's very very common that there's almost this grooming gang kind of mm-hmm. mentality on their boards they get these boards going online these message boards and they start talking to these lost and confused girls and start you know priming them up as you know it's, oh you can be wonderful you can change but it's because they want to maintain the fantasy that they can change they're themselves. called egg catchers or they call, they have a name yeah they're called egg catchers to come and catch the vulnerable kids and and recruit and, and, to bring them in right so that's literally um there's a there's a lot to the idea of not wanting to be alone in your struggle mm-hmm. or to have your your the challenges of your own life feel validated by seeing other people. So a statistic like a 4,400% increase in transitioning young women in a short period of time uh, validates you. See, it's not that weird. Look how many people are doing it. I'm not, I'm not doing something that's, that's, uh, you know, way off the course or whatever. Mm. And again, I still, I have a liberal ethic about it. I think if people feel like they are best suited by transition, then they should be allowed to. It's their decision. But it is also an adult decision. And it's horrific if you have medical and psychological professionals kind of pushing people into it. You mentioned the money and there's an obvious corruption there. Oh, wow. A lifetime, a lifetime patient on hormone now and multiple surgeries like cha-ching. So to say that, and I don't think that most doctors doing it are are cynically motivated by by the money. Some will be, of course. It always works out that way. I would say the majority are just so caught up in the ideology. They don't want to feel like a bad person. So they feel like they're liberating people. This poor little girl doesn't know who she is. And I'm going to liberate her from her confusion. And I'm going to help. And that's such an important thing to do. It's messed up. It's just messed. There's nothing else to say about it. It's just messed up. I have seen, I've seen a surgeon cutting a cutting a cake where there's a patient on the top with somebody cutting her breasts off and there's a there's a surgeon in the UK who waxes lyrical about all types of um plastic surgery who's got like really expensive art that he's had commissioned on the wall of himself slicing I mean I'm laughing because it's so macabre and it's yeah people just look so evil but anyway you started the conversation by by saying that you were feeling a little bit low uh, due to the federal government. Uh, what was it specifically, if you don't mind me asking, that you saw today that made you think? It was, it was yesterday. It was, yesterday. Um, it, was, was it, it was not the Treasury Department. Our Treasury Department has more or less decided that they're going to go aggressively anti, anti-racist. And so as parts of our, our military and our Pentagon, which, okay, <laughs> good, good luck, guys. Um, I'm trying to think it was actually a relatively small office, but it was then I was having a conversation with a number of my friends around it, or kind of professional friends, and they just went into like the black hole, like it's irrecoverable at this point. And so it was a, just another one, of the, but now this makes three, you know, in two days or a day and a half that I saw major government agencies. And then I tweet about these things and then I get an inbox full of, hey, by the way, I saw the thing about the treasury department. Did you know about this, 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 and this too? it's like, ah, oh, crap, you know, it's, it's just another department, another department. It's, it, it's that feeling that it's in everything. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, if you want to make me like 
really excited, just point me out to like one medical malpractice lawsuit burning one of these doctors. And I'd be like, we're winning, <laughs> you know, I'm ready to go. I think so, they'll come. I think the, the, I think they'll come. Uh, we've I've got talked to here. some lawyers. They're excited. They're well, I said to my kids, they're excited. train as medical lawyers. I was like, just train as medical lawyers. I've got a son who's going to go to uni and do maths. And I was like, after that, do some law, do a bit of medicine, train as a medical lawyer. You will be absolutely loaded for your whole life. You'll be so rich. Yeah, um, that's right. Medical law and employment law right now are just about to be you know, off the charts. I mean, I know lawyers, I, they, they send me messages too. And they're like, it's Niagara Falls, a litigation coming, baby. <laughs> I'm like, okay. They're like, send potential clients. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then finally, I've got your book ready to download and I hate flying. And so I'm hoping it's going to be ready before my flight so I can drink some strong drinks and get on a flight and just immerse myself. So when is it out? So Cynical Theories officially comes out um, on 25th August. It's a little more complicated in the UK because we just had a UK publisher pick it up. So if you want to make sure you have it for the flight, you should reach out to the publisher and request a review copy since you interviewed me. Uh, but it is coming out. That way you can read it because it would be good and you can talk about it on your podcast. Uh, but will. yeah, I read it heard it in one sitting on my flight to Los Angeles to go on Joe Rogan. And man, that, it's a bit heavy for that. Uh, but I was, it, it's a good read. It is, it, it does actually communicate the ideas, I think, very fairly and very honestly. So I hope people will, will find that to be true. I'm sure academic Twitter will not, and they'll be very upset with us. But I think that that, that would be something you should, you should look into doing and, and check it out for us. Well, my, my very final, because I'm, I'm reluctant to let you go, actually, but my very final no, question, cool. did you have any idea say even, I don't know, 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, my kids were quite small. My oldest was eight. So I had a, a, like a toddler and I'm just this outspoken person and I've continued to be, you know, just opinionated. And I never knew that that would sort of launch me into being in, in some people's eyes, just an incredible human, which clearly I'm not. I'm the same as we all were 10 years ago. It's just loads of people are too frightened to say. Did you have any inkling this was coming and that you would suddenly be like a, a hero of no. rational speech? Oh my gosh, no. Um, and you asked 10 years ago, I don't think I even would have realized it three. I did realize once we started writing the grievance studies papers and then they started to get accepted. I was like, okay, this is gonna be significant. And there's no denying it. And there was no reason to try to downplay or ignore that fact. So that's mm -hmm. when I started to get the inkling, but I didn't realize it was going to turn into something like this. Uh, you know, I thought I was going to have my little laugh with the papers, make a point, some, somebody might pay attention to it. And then, you know, I could move on to other things in life rather than having to talk about and read about this stuff literally all the time. It's like, I, I've been saying for years, I just wanted to, to do the thing and retire from kind of everything public. <laughs> I got my taste of public and I'm kind of done with it. And so, no, certainly not. Um, I find myself all the time, people ask this, you know, in personal conversations and I say, well, were you a fan of Seinfeld? And um, they're like, what, why? And I'm like, there's this one episode where I think, I can't remember if it's George or Jerry, but one of them's ranting about Kramer. And it's like, he just falls ass backwards into money, blah, blah, blah. He's talking about how nothing ever goes wrong in Kramer's life. And he just falls ass backwards into money. It's like, I just feel like I fell ass backwards into this. 
and now I'm stuck in it. I asked a, a gentleman recently was telling me, he was like, well, you've got to do this and you've got to lead this and all of, you're like a leader or whatever. And I'm like, what? Why? Okay. You decided to say it. So you have to answer my question now. Why me? And he said, <laughs> your number came up, buddy. That's why. And I was like, awesome. So no, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see it. I mean, even last year, people were talking to me in weird ways. And I was like, I need to get a therapist and talk about this. And I'm telling my therapist what they're saying. And my, ther my therapist is like, are you sure you're, I mean, it's like, she's hinting around that I'm delusional. She's like, are you sure that's <laughs> what people think? And I'm like, my life's a little bit weird now. Um, it's really weird. The stuff that people are saying around me and to me, and I don't know how to handle it. And so finally she was like, I, this is beyond what I can help you with. You know, sorry, best of luck. I don't want to keep stringing you along here. So no, I didn't see it coming. That's for sure. I always try and keep the praise and the criticism at kind of the same value and listen to none of it. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I don't listen to any of it. Somebody was saying to me earlier today on Twitter, like, I hope you're keeping track of all your Twitter replies. I was like, I don't look at them. I just don't look at them anymore. I just stopped. It's depressing to look at them. Um, it, it, either, even if it's good, it's like, it's only good until it stops being good and you fall yeah, off yeah. the cliff and it's, it's, it's miserable. So it's like, I don't look, I do what I do. And then I try to unplug more now because it's just too much. So yeah, the crazy, the praise and the criticism. I, my, I, I told somebody right before the the Mike, the guy who's doing the film, Mike Nana is doing the film of it. Uh, right before we went public with the grievance studies affair, I got kind of cagey about it, and he was like, "Really, you're going to get cold feet and kind of like back out now?" I'm like, "I'm not backing out." He was like, "What? You don't want to face the criticism?" I was like, "I don't want to face the praise. I don't want to face either. It's like I just don't want the noise. If you ever find your 15 minutes of fame, may it only last five. It's like, that's how I feel. And it's always kind of been like that ever since. And now it's like, oh crap, you have to go on Joe Rogan again. I'm like, all right, whatever. Oh, shucks. Well, thank you I mean, so much. <laughs> it is a month of mayhem if you do. Uh, your, your next month is hard to keep up with. So it's a thing. Well, I've never, I've never been invited, but I can't say I'd turn him down. Um, on that note, thank you so very, very much. It was absolutely brilliant to talk to you i thought it would be uh, and i wasn't oh, great thank you thank you very much yeah bye, bye. bye. i'm gonna pause this uh told you so what a great chat don't forget to download his book or purchase it for the 25th of august um his book called cynical theories with helen pluckrose and check out his work i mean it's surface level it's funny it's amusing uh it's sort of a bit embarrassing for academia but it's overwhelmingly sinister, uh, the things that him and his colleagues have revealed. And so do, do check it out. Uh, he's frequently on talking circuits, so you can look at many uh, of his uh, previous conversations with people far more famous than myself. Um, as always, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And we have plenty of brilliant episodes coming up.